Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The big question with health care is now what? U.S. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell pulled the latest Republican plan to repeal Obamacare and replace it Monday night after two Republican senators said they wouldn't support it. It was apparent at that point that there weren't enough votes to pass the bill. McConnell and President Trump have suggested just repealing Obamacare without a replacement. There's been talk of going back to a health care bill passed in the House. WITF's Transforming Health reporter Ben Allen joins us today on what could happen next and what this all means to you, Ben. Always enjoy having you on the program. Thanks for having me, Scott. If you have a question or a comment about health care, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. Well, Ben, I talked about a couple of the options that have been discussed already. Yep. So much is happening on this so quickly. I mean, at first... This show will be out of date by 7 o'clock tonight, I'm afraid. Absolutely. I think you're right. (laughs) Uh, That, you know, at first it was, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell talked about uh, repeal without replacement. Uh, But then there was some talk yesterday about just letting Obamacare collapse. Here's President uh, Trump. Let Obamacare fail, and then everybody's going to have to come together and fix it. And... uh, come up with a new plan and a plan that's really good for the people with much lower premiums, much lower costs, and much better protection. I've been saying that, Mike, I think you'll agree for a long time. Let Obamacare fail. It'll be a lot easier. And I think we're probably in that position where we'll just let Obamacare fail. Uh, We're not going to own it. I'm not going to own it. I can tell you the Republicans are not going to own it. Okay, so he sounded pretty definitive at that point, but that is not just the only option. What are we looking at right now? So, well, first of all, let's say, um, and and this isn't me talking, this is the nonpartisan Kaiser Family Foundation. They recently did a study on where kind of the insurance markets are um, regarding uh, the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare as it's known. Um, And actually, those, those insurance markets, Scott, believe it or not, are actually stabilizing. Um, they have actually started to stabilize in the first quarter of this year. Um, more insurers are paying out less in terms of um, care than they are taking in in premiums. And that is that is a good sign. That is what you want to see. You want healthy insurers, essentially, so that uh, premiums don't continue to rise up year after year. Um, so, when when President Donald Trump says, let Obamacare fail, first of all, let's just put some facts on the table. Health care is one-sixth of the economy. So um, to say, let let that, that, um, that part of the economy fail, that large uh, slice of the economy fail, that's, that is, that is ex- uh, inflammatory rhetoric that um, certainly will raise some concerns among insurers. Because when we're talking about the Affordable Care Act and what the, the power of the Trump administration at this point, there's a couple different levers they can still pull on. And you, you may have heard, if you've been following this debate, you may have heard President Trump kind of pull on these levers a little bit. And the most notable one is these things called cost-sharing reductions, CSRs, as some people call them. And this is basically payments that the federal government gives to insurers to help them um, finance uh, insurance coverage for lower income people. And those payments, I believe, if they're not monthly, they're quarterly. And so the Trump administration at any point could say, you know, we've had enough. We're not going to pay these anymore. And uh, I know that they have tried to use that as a negotiating uh, chip at times. Um, that kind of uncertainty will raise a lot of concern 
among uh, insurers. Just to put that in perspective, insurers in Pennsylvania submitted their rates for uh, insurance on healthcare.gov for next year. If nothing changes, they said rates would go up by 9%. But if those CSRs, if those cost-sharing reduction payments go away, rates would go up by 23%. So there, there are big, big numbers we're talking about here, and that is really the main, the main lever. So because there isn't a whole lot of specificity from the president about what it means, let Obamacare fail or, or anything along those lines, as an insurance company, I would be thinking, well, does this mean he's going to stop paying our CSRs? Does this mean he's going to change regulations? Does this mean, you know, he's going to make it more difficult for us to operate? Does this mean, um, you know, it, it's it's hard to tell. And the last thing, Republicans and Democrats can agree on this, the last thing that companies like is uncertainty. Um, and uh, right now, there still is a lot of uncertainty. Mm. And that actually could be one of the biggest issues. Well, I know it's one of the biggest issues, but maybe the biggest issue right now as to what impact there is on premiums and how much they raise. They're, they're, they rise. I'll right, right. The uh, the insurance department here in Pennsylvania, as I mentioned, they did ask insurers, uh, and you may remember back in uh, early June, they asked insurers it and released the rates. And again, rates would go up by 9% if nothing changed in Washington, D.C. Um, if if the individual mandate went away, rates would go up by about 20%. If cost-sharing reductions went away, they'd go up by about 23%. If the individual mandate and cost-sharing reductions went away, they'd go up by nearly 40%. So, um, you know, that, that level of uncertainty certainly... Uh, raises concerns. Actually got a statement um, from Highmark just uh, right before uh, hopping on uh, Smart Talk here. And they talked about in this statement stabilizing the individual market, which includes those cost-sharing reduction payments, um, funding to deal with with people with high medical costs, and then um, strong incentives to obtain and maintain health insurance coverage. What we hear there, if, if you read through that statement, is we want to know that we're going to get those cost-sharing reduction payments for, for the future. We want to be able to get some kind of reimbursement for people with high medical costs. And then we want either a mandate or a lockout period or some kind of thing to make sure that people have either a stick or a carrot to get insurance. Because if you don't have that as an insurer, you don't know what you're going to get in your risk pool, and that can be potentially a a, a dangerous, dangerous uh, road to go down. Well, that individual mandate was one of the aspects of Obamacare that Republicans hated the most. Oh, it was the most controversial by far. That they wanted to get rid of. But as you said, without that mandate, even with the mandate, one of the problems with Obamacare was that not not enough healthy young people got insurance. They opted to just pay the the fine, if you will, and didn't sign up for insurance. Without and there that, were exemptions you could drive a bus right, through within right, right. that within that fine. So without that uh, carrot and stick approach, if there's not incentive to uh, to to get insurance, we get, get a real problem. All right. So before we uh, take some phone calls here, um, repeal without replacement. Yeah. This was something that Mitch McConnell has uh, talked about. Uh, so what would the impact be with that? So that was one of the plans originally, and we'll hear from Andy Carter, the head of the uh, Hospital and Health System Association of Pennsylvania, in just a second. Let's let's be clear, first of all. Let's lay out some ground rules. The Senate actually cannot do a full repeal. So if you hear a senator say, we're going to do a full repeal, they actually can't do that. Um, under the rules that they're operating on. They need 60 votes in the Senate to do a full repeal. Right now, uh, the Senate only wants to, the, the, the Republicans have made the decision, we're going to go with 50 plus the tie-breaking vote from Vice President Mike Pence. So they can't do a full repeal without reconciliation or under the reconciliation rules. So they'd have to leave some regulations in place um, and that's because recula- reconciliation really has to do with federal budget impact. Let's cut to the chase here, though. The Congressional Budget Office, nonpartisan, um, did an estimate on the bill. These are estimates. They're imperfect. The CBO says it right in there, uh, right in their estimate, that it's difficult to determine how all these affected parties would respond. But here are the numbers. The number of people who are uninsured would increase by 18 million 
in the first new plan year following enactment of of the bill. And this was a 2015 bill that's very similar to what the Senate might take up next week. So uninsured would go up by $18 million in the next year. Then um, after uh, Medicaid eligibility is shifted around and uh, subsidies are changed for insurance, uh, it, that number would go up to $27 million uninsured. And then by 2026, we're looking at $32 million. These are estimates from the CBO. They're imperfect. Some can be low. Some can be high. But, you know, it, you throw a dart at, at, at a board and, you know, you're pretty close-ish. You know, they say they take the middle road. They don't take the highest. They don't take the lowest. CBO says we kind of take an average of where the estimates would be and put it there. So $32 million uninsured by 2026 is the estimate of where things would be. And that's not a high estimate. That's not a low estimate. CBO says that's our middle estimate. So they could be much lower. They could also be much higher. Um, and that is, I mean, that that's, that, that's the fact um, as we sit here right now. Um, I, I did ask Andy Carter, as I mentioned, uh, with HAP, and they've been opposed to uh, big changes to the ACA that would leave more people uninsured. But I asked him, you know, what does this feel like over these past uh, couple of weeks? I do worry that uh, we could face the surprise of a, an effort to actually uh, pass legislation that attempts to completely repeal the Affordable Care Act or those parts of the act that can be repealed through reconciliation. And so that's Andy Carter talking a little bit about how, you know, we've seen surprises over the past six months as this health care reform has kind of worked its way around. And then he makes uh, an analogy to what this has felt like. Choose the movie you want to uh, invoke as a reminder of what this feels like. It's either Groundhog Day if you're uh, in a good mood, or it's a Friday night horror movie in which the uh, the villain seems to be dead but comes back to life uh, right when you don't expect it. A little bit of a colorful analogy from someone that's the head of the Hospital and Health System Association of Pennsylvania. But, Scott, I mean, I think, you know, he's right uh, that, that they're, uh, what is old is new again. Uh, this is this was the plan in January and February. There was talk about this uh, from the Senate GOP leader, Mitch McConnell, uh, that uh, they would do a full repeal and then work on replacement. And I remember doing these stories. I remember covering this because it was only six months ago. We were talking about how insurance companies wouldn't know how to cope because they wouldn't know what was coming in terms of a replacement. And CBO estimated that 32 million people additionally would be uninsured by 2026. Simply the facts. Haven't heard a whole lot about this, but I did hear it suggested yesterday that the Senate may go back to the House plan. I don't want to get too far in the weeds with the the politics of this, but what would that mean? So going back to the House plan, as far as I understand, it would mean trying that, but simply changing it to a a repeal that would get through reconciliation Um, because I think there is some concern uh, and there are certainly some some pieces of the House plan that the Senate doesn't like and um, I think that they um, as far as I understand it that um, if they went to the House plan it would merely be to get a vote potentially uh, on the record for some conservative senators who want to show that they've done something, and then they would try something along the lines of a partial repeal, working on a replacement in the future. Because, you know, even uh, even uh, reporters at right-leaning or conservative sites that I follow um, and, and, and interact with say Mitch McConnell doesn't have the votes for even a partial repeal right now. Um, uh, Pennsylvania's uh, U.S. Senator Pat Toomey, the Republican uh, in the Senate, has said he would vote for something like that. Um, He said that in a statement yesterday. He would vote for a partial repeal, um, but um, they don't have the the 50 votes uh, if all the reporting that I'm reading is correct as we sit here. On Wednesday, we're going to talk uh, more about this and uh, take a few phone calls at the same time. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org spine. WITF's Transforming Health reporter Ben Allen is our guest during this portion of the program. We're talking about health care, and I should mention that the Transforming Health is a project of uh, WITF. You, for more information, Ben has covered this probably more than any other journalist. Go to transforminghealth.org or go to WITF.org and click on uh, Transforming Health. You can learn more about the changing atmosphere of health care. I mean, we've joked about it changing from, uh, or at least the plans changing minute by minute. It, but uh, there is so much going on, and if you follow Transforming Health, you can learn so much more about it. It's supported by uh, WITF, Penn State Health, and WellSpan Health. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalk. WITF. We will be on the phone in just a moment, but something very important that many Pennsylvanians care about, actually many Americans care about, but uh, in our listening area, there are many Pennsylvanians who are concerned about losing their health care in the form of Medicaid. Yeah, so the Medicaid portion of uh, the BCRA, or Better Care Reconciliation Act, that's the Senate GOP uh, bill. Um, It's important to note that while the BCRA and the latest version of that of that plan is is dead, um, there is some concern in the advocacy community uh, that there would be that these kind of changes would pop up again. And just to just to be clear, uh, the changes we're talking about are changes to the Medicaid expansion population, which was uh, made possible through the Affordable Care Act, and also to Medicaid as a whole. Um, Avalier Health, which is a well-respected um, consulting firm in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, they were actually commissioned by the uh, Governor's Association for the entire nation uh, to look at what would happen to Medicaid under the Senate GOP plan. And by 2036, I know we're looking far into the distance, but it's important to get this on the table, get these contexts on the table. Federal funding by 2036 under the Senate GOP plan, would fall by 34%, 34%, cut by about a third um, by 2036. And then Avalier actually did the, did the math on how states would cope. What are options for states? And uh, the options for states are really to tighten eligibility. So that is code for reducing the number of people who are on the program, maybe tighten these optional programs, change these things around, reduce payments to providers, limit benefits, raise taxes, adjust provider taxes, which is a little bit of an inside baseball thing, or reduce spending in the state budget overall. So there are all, I don't think anyone listening, hearing that in, uh, you know, in, in a tunnel would say those are palatable options. Uh, no one wants to see people lose health care. No one wants to see providers get paid less. No one wants to see less benefits be available. No one wants to see their taxes go up. No one wants to see uh, state, uh, you know, other state programs get cut out. And no one wants to see providers pay higher taxes. Um, now, here's the problem, though, Scott, is that Medicaid is growing at a, a pretty fast rate. It's growing faster than the economy. So it is fair to say some changes could have to be made to Medicaid in the future. That is a very fair statement uh, to say. And I did ask Kristen Dama, who's with the nonprofit community legal services out of Philadelphia, how to get a handle on Medicaid spending because they work on this. uh, They help a lot of people. And what she actually said is this is a demographic problem. Pennsylvania, you cover this on your show. Pennsylvania is only getting older. And Medicaid pays for more than half of all long-term care spending in the entire country. More than half is paid for by Medicaid. Not Medicare, Medicaid. Um, And we're living longer. So even if you think you have enough, we hear this in our retirement uh, sessions that we have at WITF, even if you think you have enough saved now, 
You may not. The New York Times did a story recently uh, on, a, on a woman in Massachusetts who had $600,000 saved uh, going into retirement. Wasn't enough. She ended up on Medicaid. $600,000 saved. Um, well, that, you know, that would probably last about a year if, if, if my figures are correct yeah. with, with, with a nursing home or some other long-term facility. So um, it's, it, we don't like to think about this because we all um, hold ourselves in high esteem, I, I would hope. But when I, I, I'm, I'm trying to be humble myself as a uh, 28-year-old and Medicaid may come to my rescue or my parents' rescue, or your rescue, or Tim Lambert's rescue, it may come to someone's rescue that you know at some point. And um, so you've got to figure out a way, lawmakers have to figure out a way to make the program sustainable, while also not just doing a wholesale cut and throwing the problem to the states or throwing the problem to other because if if you can't get into a nursing home, what are you going to do? You know, right. it, you're still going to be. Uh, I'm not trying to single you out here, no, Scott, no, no, but no. you'll still yeah. be a uh, the society will still have a cost, okay. uh, and, 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 and me, that's difficult. Let me correct yeah. my math. I said a year. I was thinking sixty thousand uh, dollars. Yeah, so it's a little more than a year. Yeah, but it's it's it's, it's uh, ten years maybe. If if you right. look at like six thousand, seven thousand dollars a month, then some are. At that price, others are not. Let's take a few phone calls. Bill is in Lancaster. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, Scott morning. and Ben. Hi. Um, first, a minor comment that I was disgusted with that video clip about, well, we're not going to own it. They still haven't got it yet. It's not about them or the Democrats or the insurance companies or the president. It's about doing the right thing for the people of the United States of America that elected them. Yeah, that's – okay, good. for my question – I have not heard yet from anybody a suggestion about a mutual insurance company. Now, to educate the people if they don't understand, a mutual insurance company is to an insurance company kind of like a credit union is to a bank. In other words, the insurance company is owned by the people that are covered under their policies. And it's a zero-profit corporation, private corporation, zero-profit where if they make a profit, it goes into lowering the premiums the next year. And this seems like it would answer an awful lot of questions and uh, requirements. First of all, it's a private insurance company. Second of all, it has nothing to do with the government. The government could be involved along with all the insurance companies to create this private entity. It could be made the insurance company, the first insurance company that everybody goes to for insurance. But because it's a private company, if you don't like it, you can go to anybody else you want. Mm. Hey, and Bill. it would lower the cost dramatically. Hey, Bill, thank you very much for your call. What about that, Bill? I, I, I think, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to try and answer this the best that I can, um, there was, under the Affordable Care Act, co-ops. You may remember that, right. Scott. Right. Co-ops were created under the Affordable Care Act, and that's a very similar arrangement um, where a, a large group of people got together, let's say, and uh, you know, a nonprofit was created um, to insure those people. A couple different issues. One is um, if you don't have a large enough pool, if one or two or 10 or 15 people have especially high medical costs that year, um, that can drive up prices for the entire pool to to the point where it's at a breaking point. So it's tough to kind of start from the from the bottom, if that makes sense. You you need that that cushion, that financial cushion, and the federal government did try to provide that a little bit under the Affordable Care Act. Um, there there was some talk of well, were they providing enough cushion? What was Congress doing? Was Congress um, making it difficult uh, for these co ops to actually um, survive? Um, that might be the best example of of what uh, Bill is talking about there. Um, you know, it, it again uh, certainly something that sh- could be considered. Um, the one thing that uh, I, I I actually should, probably should get this pasted onto my uh, pasted onto my uh, cubicle. I think Scott, uh, the 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 number one commandment of, of healthcare policy. Is there's no such thing as a perfect plan. Every single one of them 
comes with trade-offs. And if someone says there are no trade-offs, don't believe them. Let's go to Jana in Dover. Jana, you're on the air. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Every day. Thank you. Um, I really like Bill's idea. And along those lines, I haven't heard anybody throwing out any other, you know, maybe noble ideas. But I have some good friends who are expats from Germany. And, of course, we get into these discussions. And why do we not look at something similar to some other developed countries where they have a hybrid system where, let's say, the government, um, people can choose at the age of 18 to pay higher tax. We're looking at tax reform. This could easily be added in. Um, they pay a higher tax, let's say 30, 40 percent of their taxes, and then they have their coverage through the government. However, they have a choice. If they're young, if they're healthy, and they don't want to put in that kind of money from their taxes, they have a choice to go out and buy um, insurance on the private market. The caveat is that as you age, if at one point you ever make that decision to go into the private market, you stay in the private market. So it kind of offers this safety net for the people who are um, in the government system and they decide to stay in that system, then that pool of money keeps growing because if they choose to stay in their entire lives, it's always a certain amount or a certain percentage of their taxes that go towards that. Mm -hmm. Again, if you go into the private market, you forfeit your ability to ever go back into the government side. So it seems to me that that still would um, support a private market. So these insurance companies can still make their money and still make their profits, et cetera. But yet it still covers the people who are willing to allow the government, you know, to offer their health care. And I haven't heard any kind of option like that. And I guess it could be similar to bills, you know, like there's a big pool of, you know, it just offers choices for everyone. It's not trying to, you know, alter this Affordable Health Care Act to cover everyone at the same time because there is no good, perfect option. Hey, Janet, thank you very much for your call. What about that? Yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of different ideas out there, Scott, uh, including one actually from um, a, a, a GOP uh, Senate candidate here in Pennsylvania, Paul Addis, he has an idea to um, consider a, a catastrophic insurance uh, for everyone uh, in the U.S. and then allowing some kind of, um, you know, if people want a different coverage, they could certainly go get that. Uh, you know, I again, there are a lot of ideas out there. I think... One of the things, though, that's important to remember is that when we're talking about health care right now, a lot of what we're talking about is simply shifting the costs. Who's going to pay it? Is it going to be government? Is it going to be employers? Is it going to be private citizens? Are we all going to pay it in taxes? Um, there hasn't been, and boy, oh, boy. As a healthcare reporter, I would love to have this discussion how to actually reduce or slow the rise in healthcare spending. Um, those conversations, for the most part, don't happen. Um, there has been um, a lot of uh, talk about the Affordable Care Act and what it did and didn't do. What it did do was it did create some experimental programs to try and slow that rise in, in costs. Um, obviously, uh, it, it failed in some ways and succeeded in others. Um, but to, uh, to, to propose all these ideas um, is really kind of dancing around the real issue, which is prices are going up year after year. More people are using health care, especially in Pennsylvania and other states that are aging at a faster rate than other places in the U.S., and at some point, you'd like to believe lawmakers and other policymakers will look at this and say, you have to figure out how you're going to reduce the cost of care. Because all, your, all, all these bills are doing, someone said this to me uh, that I was talking to from an insurance company here in, in Pennsylvania. Someone said to me, you know, this is just a health care financing bill. This isn't a health care bill. This is just a health care financing bill, talking about the Senate GOP bill. Um, it, it, you move the, you know, I'm not trying to compare health care to the Titanic here, but all you're doing is moving deck chairs around. It's this time the government will pay uh, a little bit less, but 
someone else is going to pay more. The costs just don't disappear. So, um, you know, I think that I would love to have a discussion about how to actually reduce health care costs. A couple, we only have a few minutes yeah. left, Ben, and I want to touch on a couple other things. Uh, you have co- covered the opioid crisis yep. uh, pretty extensively. There was additional money in uh, the Senate bill for treatment of, uh, of right. opioids. What about now? So things are just kind of operating um, as they were, you know, a week ago at this point. There was $45 billion in that Senate bill for the opioid crisis. But that $45 billion sounds like a big number. Um, I, I did the math. I talked with experts. I actually had a story that was set to air on NPR um, talking about those experts told me that $45 billion would not be enough because it is paired with a cutback in federal spending on Medicaid. Um, So if you actually break it down, it really comes out to about $2,000 per person that got treatment for their substance use disorder last year through Medicaid expansion. That is, that, that's enough for, I mean, we were talking about 10 years of, of coverage for uh, long-term care. Uh, that's, like, that's like one or two weeks of coverage uh, for, substance, for someone with a substance use disorder. So right now, things are just operating as normal. 124,000 people in Pennsylvania last year on Medicaid expansion got got used Medicaid expansion to get treatment for their substance use disorder. That's continuing, and that'll continue until or if and when, uh, you know, the, uh, Congress decides to make a, a change. Funding the Food and Drug Administration, I yeah. mean, this would seem to be a no-brainer. Yeah. It happens every uh, five years, but uh, there is some question as to whether that actually will happen. So it is, uh, and STAT, uh, which is a great resource, a great news outlet out of Boston brought this to my attention. Um, this is, uh, these are these user fee agreements. You would, you would think they're going to move through pretty quickly. The House has cleared the measure, um, but... Um, you know, these are contracts to make sure that 4,000 people at the Food and Drug Administration um, is uh, are, are continue to have jobs because of this uh, user fee agreement that uh, companies uh, agree to pay. The other one thing that, and I know we're running out of time here, Scott, the other one thing that I did want to mention that uh, really uh, draws my attention is the, the Children's Health Insurance Program. The CHIP program, yeah. CHIP program. Um, although that is a, a, a double, it's CHIP, uh, not the CHIP program. Uh, if that funding has not been authorized. Uh, the deadline is September. Uh, here we are, sitting in the middle of July. Uh, the CHIP program has not been authorized yet. Now, that is, that, um, I should be a little bit more clear and say that most states are okay in terms of the funding that they have already. Um, but uh, things could start to get a bit hairy if, you know, it hasn't been reauthorized and the funding hasn't been reauthorized by the end of this year. Um, and, you know, you go down to D.C., the end of this year comes up very quickly. Um, so uh, that is something that uh, I think uh, a lot of people will be watching. One real quick uh, final yeah. question, uh, Allison asks, uh, wouldn't withdrawal of the CSRs constitute illegal action on the government's part? So there's actually been a case about this. Um, there's a case that's actually uh, kind of pending in the court system because there's still a debate over whether Congress actually authorized these uh, cost-sharing reduction payments. Um, so uh, the Trump administration, frankly, has some wiggle room. Uh, they can decide that they're not going to pay these because Congress never explicitly authorized them. They were kind of uh, the Obama administration using some fuzzy legal uh, legal definitions said, uh, we can kind of pay these. And insurers were more than happy to go along with it. Uh, the, the, the Republicans in Congress actually sued the Obama administration over it. Um, and that case is still pending.
Ben Allen is WITS Transforming Health Reporter. Ben, as always, thank you very much for uh, providing the update. And uh, pay attention to, to Ben's reports. Go to transforminghealth.org because it is changing quickly. Thank you very much, Ben. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Next week, the 20th Annual Sabre Negro League Research Conference will be held in Harrisburg. It will bring researchers, historians, and authors from across the country and Canada to focus on baseball played by African Americans before blacks were allowed to play Major League Baseball. Some of baseball's best players like Josh Gibson, Satchel Paige, and Cool Papa Bell played in the Negro Leagues after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947. Only a handful got to play in the Major Leagues. Harrisburg has a major role or had a major role in Negro League Baseball. Ted Norris, a local baseball historian with extensive knowledge of the Negro Leagues. Ted, welcome to the program. Nice to be here, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, lots of history here. And for those who also uh, enjoy baseball and know a whole lot or maybe want to know more about Negro League Baseball, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. All right, so this conference uh, next week, this is a three-day conference that starts next Thursday. Um, why Harrisburg? Well, uh, I, I spoke to the Harrisburg Senators fan club last night on the same topic, uh, and I gave them five examples of events that occurred here that bring bring this conference here. All right, so what are those five events? 1885, the very first professional African-American team was called the Cuban Giants. There were two Harrisburgers on that team, Jack Fry and Clarence Williams. So that's the first one. In 1890, the Harrisburg Senators, the, uh, the Harrisburg minor league team, they were then known as the Ponies, uh, they actually were integrated. Uh, they had two black players on the team, and uh, the, the biggest event happened in September of that year when the team was joined by a young catcher from Pittston, Pennsylvania. Now, this is a future major leaguer, Huey Jennings, mm-hmm. who was made the Hall of Fame as a shortstop. He was a catcher for the Harrisburg team. But one of his Harrisburg teammates, one of the black Harrisburg teammates, was a guy named Frank Grant. And he also has made it to the Hall of Fame. So this is the first instance, long before Jackie Robinson and P.B. Reese, where one black, one white player, teammates, both go on to the Hall of Fame. So that's another very significant event. In 1903, the first year of the World Series, the Pirates played the Red Sox. It also happens to be the year the Colored World Series occurred, and Game 6 of that World Series was played right here on the island, where baseball's been played since 1890. The great Rube Foster was the hitting and pitching star of that game, and of course he's a Hall of Famer. This wasn't a Harrisburg team. The catcher and the manager of the team was Clarence Williams, though, so there was a strong Harrisburg connection. Uh... 1920s, of course, the Harrisburg Giants are in the major leagues of the Negro Leagues. They're the second-best team in the Eastern Colored League uh, with two Hall of Famers, Oscar Charleston and Ben Taylor, and several other could-be Hall of Famers. They really rivaled the Yankees' murders row in terms of run-scoring capability. Unfortunately, they, they rivaled the Phillies in pitching. So that, that kind of <laughs> Today's back. Phillies, you mean? Well, <laughs> either, either way, the Phillies yeah. were, weren't very good in the 20s. No, and, no they weren't. Uh, and then the last example, uh, the 1954 team, which we still honor every year at the uh, Negro League Night of the Senators, uh, That was an integrated team in a league called the Eastern Negro League. And uh, that's before the Red Sox, Tigers, Yankees, or Phillies were integrated. So that is also a hook to bring to bring folks to Harrisburg. Mm. I, I wonder, I mean, you talk about this so so much with the people in the public, and a lot of times the people you talk with are baseball fans or have some knowledge, but I wonder, does do a lot of people understand or realize how historic a role Harrisburg has in Negro League African-American baseball? I I don't think so. I think it's way underappreciated. And, uh, you know, we have resources here none better than Caleb Jackson, who actually saw these teams play in the 30s and 40s. And he'll be participating in a panel, which I'm really looking forward to uh, during our our conference, but but no, there is not an appreciation locally or nationally of 
Harrisburg's impact in the Negro Leagues. You know, and I'm going to jump around on you, but you mentioned Oscar Charleston uh, was player manager of the Harrisburg Giants, and they only were around for like five or six years in the in the 20s. But uh, as I was doing some research, saw a, a top 10 best Negro League players, and Oscar Charleston was listed as third best of all time. Yeah, and that's that's not a bad ranking. I I put him number one, of course, and I I, I really feel strongly about that. Uh, he's probably he was the first outfielder put into the hall from the Negro Leagues who had passed on. Both Cool Papa Bell and Monty Irvin went in before him because they were alive and influential. Monty chaired the committee that that selected the, the, these folks. Oscar Charleston, I think, most of the players back in the forties would have agreed was the best of the Negro League players. And he lived here in Harrisburg for five, five, maybe 10 years and got mail here in Harrisburg for the rest of his life. Him and his wife, he was married to a Harrisburg woman and they never divorced. What kind of player was he? Well, he's a center fielder. Uh, he played shallow. His arm may have been his weakest component, but he he was a five-tool player, no doubt about it. In fact, okay, five-tool for our ba- non-baseball oh, fan, five-tool player. Okay, now let me hope I get it right. He could hit for average, hit for power, throw, field, and run. And in his case, uh, he is the all-time leader in both home runs and steals in Negro League baseball history. So he he's a magnificent uh, player. Wow, that is amazing, yeah. both home runs and steals. Yes. So, obviously, power and speed. Yeah. And that is uh, a combination you don't find very often. I mean, Barry Bonds in the major leagues, uh, you know, aside from whether there was some performance-enhancing drugs there, all-time leader in home runs and stole probably 400 bases, too. More than that? More than that, over 500. Is it 500? Yeah. Yeah. You know, he early in his career was uh, a league leader sometimes, or at least amongst the league leaders. So let's talk a little bit about the conference. And, you know, I asked why Harrisburg, and you explained it pretty well as to the historic uh, significance of Harrisburg. But this isn't the first time that this conference has been in Harrisburg. No, uh, the conference sprung out of the National Sabre Conference, which is really something that every baseball fan needs to go to. This year it was in New York City, 806 baseball fanatics in one hotel. (laughs) But back in 1996, it was in Kansas City, and of course it was heavily influenced by the Negro Leagues being in the city where the museum is. And a group of us... Museum is... uh, The Negro League Baseball Museum is in Kansas City, Mm -hmm. and it's wonderful, and it's right next to a jazz museum, so if uh, you and your wife (laughs) want to go... There's a little bit for everybody. There's entertainment there all around. (laughs) That's right. And the neighborhood is also a former jazz mecca in the African-American community. But nowadays it's starting to come around and be uh, it's coming back. The the neighborhood had kind of deteriorated a little bit until this investment in these two museums. I can interrupt you for one other second. Another reason, Kansas City Monarchs were one of uh, the great uh, Negro League teams. That's right. Uh, In fact, they... Kansas City Monarchs, Chicago American Giants, and Homestead Grays probably have more uh, championship trophies than any other three teams. But I just want to point out, it's not a coincidence. The Kansas City Monarchs were the Negro League team. Royals is the current name, and that's a tribute in part to, to several other things, but the Kansas City Monarchs. Mm-hmm. So go back to the conference you were talking about, uh, uh, why Harrisburg, uh, and this is actually oh, for the fourth time. This is the fourth time. The conference grew out of the Sabre con- conference, some of the Negro League committee members talking, and we had the first one. I, I made a pitch to the conference to let's let's have a, sub, a subconference, a subcommittee meeting in Harrisburg in 1998. We came back in 2000 and also 2003. So Harrisburg has actually had more conferences than than Kansas City. Yes, I'm very proud of that. And I'll probably be knocking the good Lord willing in 2022 when it's the 25th anniversary. (laughs) Uh, You sent uh, your 
uh, agenda or you know what the what it looks like over the three days to me. And I have to say that I looked at that and I said that is packed. I mean, I've seen a lot of conference agendas and what you have planned, but you have three days or at least two and a half days of uh, a packed agenda for anyone who is a baseball fan, a Negro baseball fan, into history, that kind of thing. Talk about yeah. some of the things you have planned. Yeah, and, and just all three of those groups would enjoy this conference. Don't be scared if you don't know much about Negro League Baseball. First of all, there's plenty of friendly people to, to talk to you about it, but it's for baseball fans and historians. Uh, this this conference has 14 research presentations, and these are uh, peer-reviewed and, and screened, and they're the best researchers in the country talking about all kinds of uh, of Negro League baseball items, including Harrisburg. We're going to open up with Oscar Charleston and Colonel Struthers, who owned the team in the 20s. Uh, then there's a real interesting one about a white major league player. Uh, don't ask me. Bill Starr is his name. But uh, there's going to be a Harrisburg connection there, too, that I'm really excited about. And uh, so the 14 research presentations are the core, but there'll be three special panels, and these are going to be beautiful. Uh, Carmen Finestra is going to host a panel with Caleb Jackson, as I mentioned, uh, Andy Linker, who's, of course, published three books. He's on, been on our program. Sure, he has. Mm-hmm. Two of his books, of course, focus on the history of baseball on the island. So he's going to speak about the, the Negro League aspects in his books, and then we'll have two former players on that panel, too, to sort of round it out. Second panel is uh, also a good one. I don't know if you've had this young man on your show, Scott Orris. He was the Messiah College uh, student who produced an 18-minute film on the 1954 Harrisburg Giants and also uh, a, a, a little bit of the history. And his, this has been screened now in Hollywood, Millersburg, Harrisburg, <laughs> uh, Cooperstown. So it's really made uh, the film festival route, and you should have him on your show. Uh, but we're going to screen that film, and he's going to take questions and answers from the audience the final panel is the one that really gets gets me. Uh, Bob Peterson, the author of the book Only the Ball Was White, which is the a seminal volume in the study of the Negro Leagues. It's what inspired most of us to, to get in the field. He was the keynote speaker for my first conference. Someone captured it on tape. So he's going to be the final speaker. He, he's passed. At this conference, accompanied by a, a PowerPoint to keep everybody from falling asleep. I mean, Abe Lincoln could probably talk on tape for 26 <laughs> minutes and put people to sleep. But this, I'm really looking forward to the uh, to this final uh, panel. I'm curious. You have your Harrisburg Giants uh, jersey on. Are you going to wear that throughout the? Uh, I'll wear it a bit. I've I have other jerseys to wear too. <laughs> I think I've seen you in some of those jerseys. Uh, I want to talk about uh, some other people. Or some other history. Willie Fordham. Who was Willie Fordham and why was he significant? Well, Willie, boy, and that's a, a, I need another half hour, but Willie was a great man off the ball field who everyone here loved. And, and in fact, as I speak about the movement to bring this conference or the discussion of the Negro Leagues to Harrisburg, Willie is really at the forefront. His book I, I gave it my best shot. It was published in 1996, which actually predates the conference. And it started the uh, the focus on Negro League Baseball in this town. And Willie sold that book like no one else. He, he'd be at the, uh, the Farmer's Market and Broad Street every Saturday. Uh, and, he, well, he, uh, he, he took ill finally while promoting... Uh, Negro League Baseball down at the Antique Automobile Museum in Hershey. So Willie worked on baseball to the end of his life, but he's much more than just a baseball player. But but why was he significant? What was in the book? Well, in his book, his book, I, I gave it my best shot, is really significant, I, again, not just for baseball. It's a story about growing up in central Pennsylvania uh, for for anybody, and it's also a story about growing up black in central Pennsylvania. He was He's from uh, Newport, and, of course, he went to high school in Carlisle, threw in the first no-hitter for Carlisle High in probably in the early mid-40s. Yeah, he was the uh, only black player on that Carlisle High School team in the Probably 40s, yeah. was, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of these these names, nowadays, that uh, as more people learn about the, the Negro Leagues and some of the superstars of the Negro Leagues, 
there are so many people who have said, oh, I wish I could have seen Josh Gibson play. Or, you know, Josh Gibson would have made it to the major leagues. Oscar Charleston, another cool Papa Bell. Josh Gibson was called many things. The Black Babe Ruth, for one. Uh, Homestead Grays, Homestead Grays outside of Pittsburgh. Talk about Josh Gibson and, uh, you know, the kind of person that and the kind of... Uh, influence he had in the Negro Lakes. Yeah, Josh Gibson is a really interesting case. He only lived to the age of 35. Uh, so his influence beyond baseball is not as great as it could have been. However, uh, I, I'm not an opera buff, but I did go to Pittsburgh this year. I went out twice to see the opera The Summer King. And, of course, it's based on the life of Oscar, uh, I mean, of Josh Gibson. And uh, so I went out once to see it, and it, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Having every line sung, I, I, did, I didn't know the difference between an opera and a musical. There's a big difference. Uh, and, of course, thank God it wasn't in Italian. But, uh, but it, I highly recommend it if you get a chance. It's going to be in Detroit next year. But uh, Josh probably hit about 1,100 home runs in his career in all the games he played. And a lot of people harp on that. And I, and I don't – that's great. Ruth hit about the same number. But um, – we only have about 150 years homers recorded in the Negro Leagues, and the reason that's important, uh, first of all, he played very little, very little of his games are in the Negro Leagues, and the statistics of the Negro Leagues turn out to be almost identical to the statistics of the Major Leagues from 1920 through 40, 46. So the exaggerated numbers for Cole Papa Bell's speed or Satchel Page's pitching or Josh Gibson's hitting need to be tempered with the fact that, they, that those numbers were achieved against all white semi-pro teams. But if you measure Negro League versus Negro League, it's almost the same numbers that the major leagues did from 1920 through 1946. Josh Gibson played in Harrisburg? Yes, and and Caleb saw him play, and he'll be talking about that at the conference. Caleb Jackson was going to be here today, but unfortunately he had a death in the family and was unable to make it. Uh, but uh, so, so Caleb did see Josh Gibson oh, play. Oh, sure. He saw all the guys play in, in the late 30s and through the 40s. Oh, that must be uh, some uh, amazing stories. Don Newcomb debuted in Harrisburg, you know, uh, in the Negro Leagues and then went on to, of course, a major league career. And Don Newcomb, of course... Uh, uh, became very famous. Newcomb gave up uh, Bobby Thompson's home run of the Giant. Was that Newcomb? That was Ralph Branca. That was Ralph Branca. That's right. See, Ted, we could have this conversation and uh, conversations like it, but this is the kind of thing that you can do. How can someone become involved, go to the conference, attend the conference? Well, uh, I guess uh, let me give you my email. Okay. Papa Bell, P-A-P-A-B-E-L-L, at AOL.com. If you send me an email, I'll send you an agenda, price list. Uh, can I tell the price? Sure. It is a $200 conference. Now, that entitles you to the three days of activities plus a meet-and-greet Thursday night, a psych tour that celebrates Rap Dixon, uh, the banquet, and a senator's game. So it's 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 worth $400. The, and the conference is going to be at the Hilton, right? At the Hilton from Thursday morning till Saturday night. I uh, want to thank you very much, Ted Knorr. As you can tell just from listening the last uh, 20 minutes, an expert on Negro League baseball, baseball historian, a lot of other things, too. Ted, thank you very much for being with us thank today. Thank you. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we have something that uh, is a first for Smart Talk. Three state cabinet secretaries will be with us to talk about Pennsylvania's role in the Chesapeake Bay cleanup. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality.